0: The following is a sermon from Redemption Bible Chapel in London, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit redemptionlondon.ca. I think it's a good custom, a good habit if you're not in the practice at the start of a new year. Not just at the start of a new year, but uh, to take time here and there over the course of a year to um, reflect. Reflection is a good thing. To plan to evaluate to count our blessings how did the little children's chorus go count your blessings name them one by one and it will surprise you what the Lord has done good to take time to, 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 to pause to reflect to ponder it's good to take time to remind ourselves of what is really important in life. Consider the following story. I encountered it some years ago in a book. On Monday, Alice bought a parrot, supposedly a talking parrot, but it didn't talk. So the next day, she returned to the pet store. He needs a ladder, she was told. So she bought a ladder. But another day passed, and the parrot still didn't talk. How about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The next day, a miniature plastic tree. The next day, a shiny parrot toy. On Saturday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened. She had the parrot cage in her hand and tears in her eyes, her parrot was dead. Did it never say a word, the store owner asked. Yes, Alice said through her sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any food at that pet store? (laughs) Now, please hear this and give very close attention to this. When we fill our lives with anything other than what is truly important, we are just like Alice's parrot, starving in a crowded cage. When, let me repeat it, we fill our lives with anything other than what is truly important, really matters, that which is of consequence, we are just like Alice's parrot, starving in a crowded cage. What is of utmost importance? What is truly important? What is really important? The apostle Paul declared to the church at Corinth, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel. The gospel is of supreme importance. The gospel is of utmost significance. And if we try to fill our lives in 2020, whatever lies ahead, if we buy into what this world is selling, and its promises of happiness with all of its gadgets and gizmos and reality TV and amusements upon amusements, we will find ourselves starving in a crowded cage. We are wired for something far greater, made for something of far greater significance. And the starting point to that realization is the gospel. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he points us to the importance of that gospel. He reminds us of the supreme significance of what it means to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in our study of this letter to date, we have covered chapter 1. And in chapter 1, as we have followed Paul's argument, as we have listened closely and intently to his writing, we have seen his greeting in the first two verses, summed up in that great statement, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have made our way through his prayer, his prayer of thanksgiving, verses 3 through 11, where he asks in verse 9 that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And we have looked together at his testimony, verses 12 through 26, more or less. And there we honed in on that great statement in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So we have his greeting, we have his prayer, we have his testimony. And then finally in chapter 1 we have his exhortation. And it's right there in the 27th verse. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, hear it again. Only above all else. Far eclipsing everything else in your life, all that you hold dear, all that you perceive to be of significance and importance, all that is weighty in your life, above it all, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in such a way that you declare the excellencies of the gospel. Live in such a way that you point to the value of the gospel. Live in such a way that you make it clear that you esteem the gospel, what it is to know Christ and Him crucified above all else. Live in a manner that clearly declares, proclaims, and professes that the gospel is of supreme importance in your life. Boy. If I do that, what's it going to look like? It tells us in the rest of the book. In many ways, that exhortation unlocks, then it's the key. Put it in the front door of the lock. You turn it, the door opens. It's the key that unlocks the epistle. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, if I live in that way, if I live in such a manner that points to the excellency, the worth, the value, the gospel as it really is, the treasure that it truly is, What will that look like in my life? In chapter 2, we see that to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel means we will go down to Christ. We will go down to Christ. In chapter 3, we will see that if we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, we will grow up into Christ. And in chapter 4, Lord willing, we're going to see that when we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, we will carry on in Him. That's the book that is in a nutshell summed up for us Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We've covered chapter 1. We've also looked already at the first four verses. Jake Klassen, did I get his name right? Jake was here mid-November, end of November, and he walked you through the first four verses of chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up now in verse 5, take us as far as verse 8, but to make sure we've got the flow, to make sure we're really following and tracking what Paul is saying here, let me begin by reading in verse 1 of chapter 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, oh, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we have already considered the first four verses. By way of reminder, let me point you to the fact that there are three commands in those verses. Command number one in verse two, we can simply summarize it as follows. Pursue unity. That is Paul's commandment to the church at Philippi. It is a commandment which echoes through the centuries by the Spirit of God to God's people in all places, at all times. Pursue unity. Verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's the first command. The second command is this, cultivate humility. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And the third command, in verse 4, practice generosity. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So three very simple, straightforward, pointed commands. Pursue unity, verse 2. Cultivate humility, verse 3. And practice generosity, verse 4. Now what Paul does in our text is he adds a fourth command. It's in the fifth verse. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, it is the fourth command in the series, but in many ways it stands alone. Why? Because in this command, what Paul is doing is basically this. He's explaining how we can obey the first three commands. How can I possibly pursue unity? How can I possibly cultivate humility? How can I practice generosity? Well, in actual fact, in and of yourselves, you can't. Here's first things first. The first command which we must obey, verse 5, you must have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And when you have this kind of mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, among you and you're practicing it, then you will find that you will pursue unity. Back to verse 2. You will cultivate humility, back to verse 3. And you will practice generosity, right there in verse 4. And so what is the great question? As we wrestle with the text, as we work our way through it, and as we see now this exhortation in the fifth verse, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the obvious question is what? What mind is he talking about? What is this mind I'm supposed to have? What is this mind I'm supposed to appropriate? What is this mind that is supposed to be prevalent in my life to such a degree that I'm able to obey those first three commands? Paul in verses 6 through 8 explains this mind. This mind which is ours in Christ Jesus. And there's the key. He points us to Christ. If you want to understand what this mind is, if you really want to live like this so that you can obey those commands, then you must have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now what Paul does is basically this. Let me tell you three things about the Lord Jesus. And if you get it, I mean if you really get it, if you get it good, let's say that, and you really understand these three truths concerning the Lord Jesus, you will have that mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And you will, of consequence, pursue unity, cultivate humility, and practice generosity. So what is this first truth? that we must grasp. It's right there in verse 6. He was in the form of God. That's how I'm summarizing it. Let me read the verse in its entirety for you. Who, referring back to Christ Jesus right at the end of verse 5, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God. What does that mean? He uses the word form on two more occasions. Firstly, verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Then again in verse 8, and being found in human form. He uses the word three times. The term form refers to the essential nature of a person or of a being. And so when he says that the Lord Jesus was in the form of a man, he means what? He was really a man, the essence of a man. When he says that the Lord Jesus assumed the form of a servant, what is he saying? He was really a servant. All that is embodied in what it means to be a servant, that's him. So too when he says he was in the form of God, he is simply declaring, he is simply proclaiming that he is God. As John tells us in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Christ Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. To see the Lord Jesus is to behold God, the Almighty because he is the form of God. Oh, I want us to ponder this for a few moments this morning. I better take off my watch. Oh, I better take off my watch, and you better get comfortable because we want to ponder this. Oh, he was in the form of God. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. And there the Apostle Paul makes a, just just a, a, a tremendous, a tremendous statement. He tells us that God is above all. And he is through all. And he is in all. Little grammar lesson. Three little prepositions in there, right? God is over all, over, preposition number one. God is through, preposition number two, all. And God is, preposition number three, in all. He is over all. So the psalmist tells us that he is seated above the heavens. It is his majestic presence. He's above all things. He is through all. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that he upholds all things by the word of his power it is his providential presence he governs and sustains everything and he is in all he declares in the days of jeremiah do i not fill heavens the heavens and the earth it is his essential presence his presence of essence Did You get the three. He is over all his majestic presence. He is through all his providential presence. And he is in all. Pure spirit fills all things. His essential presence. You know, our sun, talking about our solar system here, our galaxy, 864,000 miles across. What's that in kilometers? I'm old school. Nineties, right? (laughs) 864,000 miles across, 1.1 million kilometers, I don't know, something like that. It's big. You get the idea. How big is that? 864,000 miles across. Imagine the size of the Earth, if you can. Take 1.3 million Earths, throw them all together, and you have the sun. Right? Uh, This star has been in the news recently because they say it's about to become a supernova. The Latinized word is Betelgeuse. I think we say Betelgeuse sometimes, don't we? That star. Thousand times, it's 864 million miles across. So the sun, thousand times more, is the star Betelgeuse. If you were to put Betelgeuse where our sun is, its mass would extend something like to the orbit of Mars or Jupiter. It's but one of billions of stars in our galaxy. And our galaxy is but one of billions of galaxies in the universe. Your, your mind hurting yet? Just snap my fingers, right? It's pretty quick. Light, I, it, it, just to get our minds around this. If you think about circling the earth seven times, In the time it took me to snap my fingers. Can you kind of imagine that? In the time it just took me to snap my fingers, going around the earth seven times, that's the speed of light. Traveling at that speed. If our sun were the size of a pea, it's not the size of a pea, it's the size of 1.3 million earths. But if it were the size of a pea, traveling at the speed of light, it would take 10 billion years to reach the edge of the universe. So how long would it take traveling at a normal speed? And how long would it take if the earth, assuming the earth, the sun is its natural size, not the size of a pea? We can't compute, even begin to compute, these kinds of numbers. God is over all. The psalmist tells us, That he is seated above the heavens. The psalmist is actually in Psalm 113, I think it is, where the psalmist declares that God actually looks down on the heavens. It's anthropomorphic language. It's to indicate what to us. That get your mind around the size of the universe and how big that is. Well, God even has to look down to get a glance of it. He's that big. He's over it all. His majestic presence. He is through it all. He sustains everything in the cosmos. If he were to withdraw his breath, the entire cosmos would cease to exist. And he is in all. His majestic presence, his providential presence, and his essential presence. I'm looking at my watch, yes. I just want to speak to one young person, um, college student, university student. Just just give me your attention here for a minute. You're going back to school tomorrow, maybe. I don't know. You're studying biology, psychology, sociology here at Western or somewhere else. and you know, being a Christian in that kind of environment, it isn't easy. And the professor kind of puts his glasses down on the edge of his nose and makes you feel like an idiot for believing in this stuff, God, creation. Um, Friend, you need to read Romans 1, and you need to develop a theory of knowledge based on Romans 1. And you need to be very clear, young person, when it comes to the existence of God and the creation of the cosmos, you need to be very clear that people, and I am picking a fight here, and someone might not appreciate this and you can talk to Tim afterwards if you don't but um, when it comes to our knowledge of God and the truth no one rejects God for intellectual reasons I'm standing up here right now and saying this no one has ever rejected God for intellectual reasons God does not allow for that category and he makes it perfectly clear in Romans chapter 1 that man reject him and reject what is obvious for moral reasons man suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness and so when you are engaging young person with unbelievers your friends on the university campus or a professor or all of us when we're engaging with neighbors never think what is what what the issue here is intellectual we are not declaring to people something they don't already know we are simply reminding them and insisting upon what they have willfully suppressed That's a huge difference when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to apologetics, when it comes to understanding the Christian faith. What can be known of God? God has made it obvious to man through creation. The revelation of his divine nature and eternal power are clearly seen so that man is without excuse. He is above all, through all, and in all, a great and glorious God. I'm reading at the moment Prince Caspian with my little, my, my daughter, my youngest. She's nine, Emma. And uh, Prince Caspian, if you recall, you know, you go back to the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. And, uh, and Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy. They've gone into the land of Narnia and they've had their adventures. And at the end of that book, they're back in England. And they spend a year in England before they're called back to the land of Narnia. And they're called back because Caspian sounds Susan's horn, right? And back they come. But hundreds of years have passed in Narnia, it's now in ruins. And it's under the control of a wicked king. And they've been called back to help Caspian regain the crown. And as they come back, they arrive at Cair Peravel. And it's in ruins. And they need to make their way to the stone mound where Prince Caspian awaits them. And on their journey there, they pass the night in the forest. Lucy is awakened. She wanders off into the trees. And who does she find? Who does she behold? Aslan. He's come for her. And the first thing out of her mouth you're bigger than I remember you're much bigger than you used to be is it because is it because you're getting older and Aslan's response I have not changed here is the reality every year you grow you will find me bigger oh is he bigger than he was yesterday Christian bigger than he was last year bigger than he was 10 years ago oh we are speaking of a boundless God above all through all and in all a God who is ultimately incomprehensible a God as Paul describes him in 1st Timothy chapter 6 as the only and blessed sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Jesus Christ was in the form of God. This God. Here is the second truth we must grasp. He emptied himself. Verse 7. But made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Now, can you fit more in there? Let's try. Who is in view here? Christ Jesus. And when we speak of God, who in particular is in view here? The Son of God. We affirm as Christians, and we sang it, but a few moments ago, God, one being, one essence. Who is? Three persons. There are three existences in the one God. The Father sends the Son in time, the Incarnation. Why? Because the Son proceeds from the Father in eternity. It's called eternal generation. The Father sends the Spirit in time. It's Pentecost. Why? Because it reveals what? That the Spirit proceeds from the Father in eternity. That is eternal spiration. That is why they are named the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Three existences, three ways of existing in the one essence, the one being who is above all, through all, and in all. Now be careful when you speak of eternal generation, eternal spiration. When we speak of God, we have moved beyond time. He dwells in one indivisible point in eternity. He is the uncaused cause. There is nothing before Him. He knows nothing of past, present, nor future. He is the great I am. I am. And so when we speak of these three ways of existence and eternal relations of origin, father and son, and father and spirit, there is no beginning to these relationships because He transcends time. This is who he is in eternity. And it is the son who empties himself. It is the son who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Oh, we have a greater chance of holding the stars in the palm of our hand. A greater chance of measuring the mountains on a scale. A greater chance of gathering the oceans in a thimble than we do of understanding this mystery. It is a mystery. Again, let me just speak maybe to the young people. I don't know. We're not rationalist folks, we are revelationists. We believe God has spoken. We believe God reveals himself in this word. And we reveal that as we use our minds to understand this word, sooner or later we arrive at what? Mystery. Because God is ultimately incomprehensible. We do not subject God to the judge of our reason. We are not rationalists. We subject our reason to His revelation as we find it in His Word. And in His Word we discover He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in his word, we discover that it is the Son who empties himself, assumes human form, takes to himself human flesh, found in the form of a servant, born in the likeness of man. We affirm that he who is over all, through all, in all, the Son of God, was carried in the womb of Mary. We affirm that he who is over all, through all, in all, was carried in the arms of Mary. We affirm that he who drank milk from his mother was the creator of that very milk. We affirm that he who grew in stature and wisdom possessed all knowledge and wisdom. We affirm that he who was hungry and weary was all-sufficient and self-sufficient. Please note this. When he emptied himself, he did not cease to be who he is, but took to himself the very opposite, human nature. A God himself, the blessed and boundless God, this King of kings and Lord of lords, did not give up, Anything did not cease to be what he always was. He continued to be God over all, through all, and in all. But assumed the Son of God, assumed to himself human nature. And by assuming that human nature, he emptied himself, taking it to himself. And the third truth which now builds on that is this. He humbled himself, verse 8. And being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. To the point of death. Even death. On a cross. Talk about mysteries. Here's another one. The Lord Jesus suspended. God incarnate the God man. Suspended between heaven and earth. On the wooden cross. Hell comes to Calvary that day. The Lord Jesus enters into hell, and he swallows in full the wrath of Almighty God. There are two eclipses. You know the story. There are two eclipses. There's an external eclipse. The sun is hidden from view, darkness over the land, and there is an eternal eclipse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whereby the Father withholds the irradiations of that divine mutual delight which had been the Son's from all eternity. As the Son goes through hell for you and for me, he was forsaken that we might be welcomed bruised, that we might be healed, punished, that we might be forgiven, made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, became poor, that we might become rich. I don't know about you. I was almost in tears earlier that video was up. Was it te- I'm sorry, is it Teen Challenge, Teenage Challenge? Wasn't that familiar? Yeah, something like that. And that young man's story, wasn't it? Can we get an amen? I mean, that was powerful. Amen. And I'm sitting there thinking, I can't help, maybe someone here just like that today. Uh, drugs, alcohol, addiction. The pursuit of pleasure, sex as a God. Pursuit of wealth, career, status notoriety, riddled with pride, I don't know. Um, I do know this, I'm speaking to believers, that as we take a look around at our neighbors, unsaved neighbors, unsaved colleagues, unsaved family members, there is an angst. Can't deny it, there is an angst. And uh, if you're here, you're an unbeliever, um, it might very well be you. You don't get, you know, this life, you might very well be at the point Maybe like that young man in the video, maybe not that extreme, maybe it's something else. You've tried everything, right? Um, Trying to make sense of this life, purpose, fulfillment, in the midst of the meaningless. You've tried this, you've dabbled in that. You've been promised, well this, indulge in this, try that, chase after this. Happiness, contentment, and yet it's just an illusion. As soon as you've got it, it's gone, it evaporates and nothing satisfies. My friend, have you been listening to what I've been saying? You want satisfaction? You want fulfillment? You want joy? You want peace? Please understand you've been wired for communion with this God, the God who is above all, through all, and in all. You have a soul. And the material will never satisfy your soul because it's spiritual. The temporal will never satisfy your soul because it's eternal. And the trivial will never satisfy your soul because it is exceptional. Created in the very image of God for communion with God. And it is God who has reached down to us. It is God who has descended to us. He has not said, here I am, come and find me, ascend to me, do the best you possibly can. No, he has come down. This God who is above all, through all, and in all, from whom we are estranged because of our own sin and willful, stubborn rebellion, he has come down. And he has emptied himself, taking to himself our flesh, body, and soul. And he has humbled himself, even to the point of death at Calvary's cross, where he has made atonement for sin. And it is when we come to him through Jesus Christ. Oh, we find peace. Do you want peace? Joy, delight, Meaning, purpose, satisfaction, you name it. I'm not saying your life's going to go well. I'm going to say this. It's going to end well. Really well. Because you get God. And God has claimed you as one of his people, his children. It's the promise of all promises. I will be their God. And they will be my people. People. And that promise is offered. It is extended through his son, Jesus Christ. Years ago, I worked for an organization. It was called Emmanuel International. It's up in a Relief and Development Organization. This is back in, yes, the 90s. And I was down in the country of Haiti. And Port-au-Prince traveled a couple hours from Port-au-Prince into the hills. Parked the Land Rover as far as the road would go. Had to walk two hours up into the hills to survey some springs. We're going to cap them to provide clean drinking water. Two hours up. There we were, did my job. Walked back, I'd run out of water. Two hours, 100 degrees out. Sun overhead, not a cloud in the sky, not a stitch of shade anywhere. I mean, I, I was sweating profusely, close to passing out. By the time I finally got back to the Land Rover, what was the only thing on my mind, the only thing I wanted? It was water. Everything else paled in comparison because everything else at that moment was completely insignificant. My friend, do you feel like that in life? This is life, it just hasn't delivered the goods. You're just a restless mess. Just trying this, trying that, here, there. My friend, you need water. You need living water. You need the Jesus, Jesus Christ. You need to be reconciled to God through Christ. And in God, you will find abundant joy, abundant peace. In God, you will find eternal enjoyment. Oh, there's an old hymn. I was thinking about this last night, and this hymn came to mind. It's funny, the hymns from my childhood, they just as I get older, they seem to come back. And this one came to mind. Just, Just hear this. Maybe some of you are familiar with this one. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord. But all the waters fail, e'en as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee, but while I passed my Savior by, his love laid hold of me. O oh Christ, in thee my soul hath found found in thee alone the peace the joy I sought so long the bliss to now unknown now none but Christ can satisfy none other name for me there's love and life and lasting joy Lord Jesus found in thee do you know it friend is that you He has descended to find you. He has descended through the incarnation of the Son of God. He has emptied himself. He has humbled himself. And he has done so as a ransom for sinners. And the Son's cry is simply this. Come unto me. Come. Come unto me. All who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Our text has a context, doesn't it? I mean, those verses, we could camp out here, we could meditate upon them, we could delight in them for Sunday after Sunday. But the context, what is it? Paul walks us through these three truths. He was in the form of God. He emptied himself. He humbled himself so that we would understand what? The mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. In other words, that we as Christians, as believers, as followers, would emulate the Lord Jesus. He who was in the form of God emptied himself and humbled himself. Though Thomas Watson writes, see here, Christian, the wonderful humility of Christ. He was co-equal, co-essential, co-substantial with his Father. Yet he took on human nature. He stripped himself of the robes of his glory and covered himself with the rags of our humanity. He who was numbered among the persons of the Trinity was numbered among transgressors. From all this, we learn to be humble. Oh, it is an unseemly sight to see a humble Savior and a proud sinner. He was in the form of God. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. This is the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. We see it played out for us wonderfully in the rest of the chapter. Let me just give you a preview, and Pastor Norm will be walking you you through this. We see, firstly, this mind is a selfless mind. You have that in the example of the Apostle Paul, verses 17 and 18. We see, secondly, that it is a serving mind. And we have that in the example of Timothy, verses 19 through 24. And Thirdly, we discover that it is a sacrificial mind. And we have it in the example of Epaphroditus. Verses 25 through 30. But in our context, as we work backwards, we get the three truths. He was in the form of God. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. We understand this is the mind we are to have. This is the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. And once that is in place, we are now enabled to do what? Go back into verses 2 through 4 and obey those three commands which Paul gives us. We pursue unity. When we have the mind of Christ. Verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Simply put, the mind of Christ provides the mechanism for overcoming our differences. The mind of Christ helps us get over and get beyond our concern of always being right, always being esteemed, always being noticed. Oh, when the mind of Christ takes hold, in the church we pursue for what makes peace and edification. We pursue unity. Secondly, when the mind of Christ takes hold, we cultivate humility. Verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The mind of Christ provides the motive for thinking of others before ourselves. We no longer think in terms of what we want, what we think we merit, what we think we deserve. We ask questions. Am I acting selfishly or selflessly? Am I trying to please myself or please God? Is my concern to satisfy my desires or to build up the body of Christ? Thirdly, when we have the mind of Christ, we practice generosity. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The mind of Christ provides the impetus for seeking the good of others and thinking of others before ourselves. Friend, here is the starting point. Pursue unity, cultivate humility, practice generosity. Having the mind of Christ, here is the starting point for healing strained relationships. Here is the starting point for healing broken marriages. Here is the starting point for healing shattered homes. And here is the starting point for healing fractured churches. Oh, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His love and power controlling all i do and say may the love of jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea him exalting self-abasing oh this is victory our heavenly father we do praise you for your word this great deposit which you have entrusted into the hands of men and women This great treasure in which you have revealed yourself, your ways, your wonders, your works. This great revelation in which you have made yourself known and the glories of the gospel of redemption. And Father, as we have opened it this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to receive. We pray, our Father, that we would be struck by your greatness and by your goodness in sending Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, that we might be reconciled with you, that we might know peace with God. Our Father, may this be for our comfort and our encouragement. May it be for the strengthening of our faith, hope, and love. And it is our earnest intercession that it might be for the salvation of some unbeliever gathered here even in our midst this day. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom in Christ's precious name. Amen.